The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. John. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I don't want to assume at this point that everyone knows who I am. Um, I'm Jay Gardner. I work as a youth minister here at the Advent with the junior high. So if you didn't know me, that's, that's who I am. And Matt's usually the preacher here and graciously invited to me to preach. So thanks, for, thanks Matt, and thanks, thanks church. Um, <laughs> sheep are so stupid. Right? We've heard this. I, I teach Bible study with youth, and I'll, I'll do a parable on you know, the lost sheep or anything that comes up with sheep. And I'll ask you know, with this imagery, what, are, what, is, what is the Bible trying to say? What are sheep like? And inevitably, not just youth, but youth will always say, sheep are so dumb. They are just so dumb. And admittedly, we've all been trained to kind of think this way. We, we see sheep in the Bible and we think they're dumb. Church people have been trained to think this way. A preacher comes along and you know, says, here's a sheep passage. I'm going to talk about sheep. I'm going to make the same tired point that sheep are so dumb. And of course, the analogy extends, since they're dumb, the analogy is us, we're dumb. And so, uh, sheep are dumb, we're dumb too. And since we're so dumb, we sin, and we're sinful. I mean, bada bing, bada boom, sermon, we're done. Well, I have to confess, I'm not going to preach that sermon for you today. I'm not going to go there. Uh, First and foremost, I don't think it's fair, really, to sheep. I don't think sheep are as dumb as that that kind of normal saying goes, Um, I mean, of course, they don't solve a Rubik's Cube or, you know, beat us in chess, which a lot of us can't do that anyways. I tried, like, unendingly in college to beat the computer in chess, and it's just impossible. So, yeah, uh, they don't solve Rubik's Cubes. They don't play chess, but neither does, you know, a dog or a cow or a pig or a goat. Uh, it's not as if sheep are really that dumb. It's not like their IQ is qualitatively different than any other mammal. Um, it's not fair. So focusing on sheep as dumb and then making that move to say that we're dumb is really disingenuous. Um, I think we preacher types are all too guilty of making that easy association and then running with it to berate people. It's not fair. Second, I think making a one-to-one correspondence between you know, unintelligence and sin is really also not true. Uh, if that were true, if we sinned, it would be because we were, our, our intelligence was lacking. We were dumb. Um, we can, so in order to kind of fix sin, we could just teach more. We could invest in education and sin would be eradicated. Some people in our history have really thought that way. I mean, the Enlightenment is kind of the, the crowning um, paradigm of this. That's what they thought. They thought if we teach hard enough, we could get rid of sin. 
So that's not true either. Sheep aren't dumb, and we can't make that one-to-one -one correspondence, that jump, to say that since they're dumb, we're dumb, and that's sin. Um, that's, just poor, that's just poor reading of the Bible. And really, poor sheep. Poor sheep. They've gotten you know, shoved around in our analogies. Not only are they stupid, but now, by proxy, they are sinful. That's not fair. So, if that's not the case, if I'm not going to go there today, what can we do with this metaphor that we see in John 10 and really throughout the Bible? Um, I mean, the Old Testament is, is, is riven with it. If you come to morning prayer at all, if you pray morning prayer, Psalm 95 is typical. We are the sheep of His pasture. What can we make of all this imagery? And I think like many metaphors in the Bible uh, that stand for God and His relationship to, to the people, us, um, it's thoroughly relational. Just think of some off the top of your head, and I, I kind of give you a, a few ideas here. Um, one is God is king, and we are his servants. That's pretty typical. It's a relational um, move. God is father, and we are his children. So there's a relationship. God is a faithful husband, and we are like an unfaithful bride. God is a hen. Jesus says this one in Matthew. He's a hen, and he's gathered the chicks under his wings. Um, you get the idea. They're all relational. They're all pointing to the idea that God has a special relationship with his people. And so what Jesus claims here in John 10 to be the good shepherd, he's making a really strong claim about how he relates to us. Jesus is not using this opportunity to say, you're dumb like a sheep, I'm going to berate you. Um, he's the good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. The dumb ones and the smart ones alike. It has nothing to do with intelligence. So when God is defining himself in this way as a shepherd, there's no way to get around the idea that this is a relational, relational move on his part. Shepherds, by definition, have sheep to tend. That is who they are, and that's what they're about. God, by definition, is a God who is for us. That is who He is. That's what He's about. So these relational ways of thinking about God, they can't really be removed from our language, uh, from our concepts, and ultimately from our prayer. God is relational. Talking about God without a relational um, metaphor or way is it really gets in the place where we really don't know what we're talking about when, we're, when we talk about God. We don't have a relational uh, link to Him. And again, there are people who have tried this, just like that enlightenment pass I was talking about to fix sin with, with education. There was kind of a move to talk about God as detached, omnipresent, omniscient, you know, all the omnis. You get the idea. But there, I mean, again, we don't really know what we're talking about. We talk about that kind of God. We don't really know what we're talking about. It's not that it's a wrong kind of language. It's just that we can't really know who we're talking about or even what we're talking about. Our language really ceases to grasp who that God is. And that framework uh, really leads us to look at God as a ground of our being, kind of a, a force that governs the universe. And talking about that really makes it hard to think about God, much less, again, pray to God. It becomes virtually impossible. So thankfully, the scriptures, they don't really talk in this way. Um, they insist upon a God who is relational. They insist upon the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They insist upon the God who was made man and who came down from heaven for us and for our salvation. This way of talking about God begins to make sense if we stop and think about our own lives, too. Uh, I don't like to make this link too much from our experience up to God, but um, if, retrospectively, you kind of look at it and say, it makes sense. We're made in His image. So we ourselves, we're thoroughly relational. Uh, we're obsessed with our relationships, and I think rightfully so. Relationships are really the only thing that matter when you boil it all down. We typically plan and arrange our lives around our relationships, uh, at least in kind of a, a perfect way. We're not perfect, but that's what we try and do. And, I mean, just think about the time you, you plan a vacation. Very rarely, I mean, maybe there's a case where you need to retreat or time alone. 
you know, you might want to do a vacation by yourself, but for the most part, we tend to think about our vacations and our, our weekends, about who we're going to spend it with, how we're going to spend it with them. Um, we're relational, and we like to be able to say to one another, hey, you remember that time? You remember that time when such and such? That was neat. I thought y'all would get that joke. Y'all remember that Saturday Night Live skit? Yeah, Chris Farley. Yeah, Chris Farley, was, he has a show on, on Saturday Night Live where he's interviewing guests, and he interviews uh, Paul McCartney in this case. There's others he did. And he's talking to Paul McCartney of the Beatles. He goes, hey, Paul, remember that time when you were in the Beatles? Paul's like, yeah. That was neat. I, I just, I love Saturday Night Live. Um, I, I felt the need, really. This was just a place to talk about Saturday Night Live. I'm sorry. Um, no, but we all want to have that moment where we can say, that was neat. Together. We want to say that together. Our lives have meaning when they're immersed into these types of relationships. And I don't mean to beat a dead horse, keep throwing around the word relationship, but this is a point we really can't, we can't miss it. Imagine your life in a scenario where you've reached all your career goals, you've done everything you've set out to do, you've tamed everything you've ever wanted, um, you've reached every milestone, you've experienced all success that you could just possibly imagine. But imagine now that you've experienced all that, but you don't have anybody to share it with. Um, you don't have anybody to, to turn to and say, remember that time? I think that scenario is hell. To not be able to turn to someone, to have a relationship with someone, to have everything we otherwise would have wanted, but not to be able to share it with someone. It's pure misery. We long for each other. We long for relationship. And almost every song we sing, um, it's really about relationship. I mean, the ones we really care about, the ones we like, it's about relationship, it's about love. And I'm not just trying to cheapen it, although ro romance is not cheap, we tend to think it is, uh, the way our, sings, our songs go. But romance is part of it, but there's so much more to a relationship than just romance. But our songs are about that, I mean, the, the good ones, the good ones are about that. I'm struck here recently, uh, this most recent Sufjan album. Sufjan Stevens is an artist, I think Matt might have quoted him once, maybe in Christmas album or something or another. I imagine most of you probably haven't heard of him, but if you have, go check him out, he's, he's really great. Um, his new album is called Carrie and Lowell. It's about his, about his mother and his, his stepfather. And he's really reflecting on his mom who, who died, who passed away. So each song on the album is drenched with this mixture of, I mean, really, it's bittersweet. It's pain and sorrow and regret on the one hand, but it's always coupled with just ecstasy and reminiscence and joy, um, the, the memory of his mother. And so the whole thing, like I said, is, it's bittersweet in the most powerful way. And so I, I feel like I cheapen it just talking about it. I think it's not really fair to the album. Go listen to it. Um, but Sufjan, he's getting, to the, he's getting to the root of how our most important relationships are, are really what create and ultimately they can destroy meaning in our lives. In one song, it's called The Only Thing, uh, Sufjan describes the excruciating pain of remembering his mother post, post her death. Uh, anything he sees reminds, you know, reminds him of her, anything that he feels or experiences. And he goes on to say, he says, he sings, Should I tear my own eyes out now? Everything I see returns to you somehow. Should I tear my heart out now? Everything I feel returns to you somehow. Relationships, they mean everything to us. They hurt more than we can tolerate when they aren't there or when they're not functioning properly. And relationships in this capacity are too much to bear. God exists in this reality. He's the relational God. And so do we. We, re we exist in this reality. We all have been subjected to this reality, too, though, where we have been ruined um, by relationships. We've also ruined our relationships at times. Relationships have become twisted, perverted, stolen, lost, detached, broken, abandoned, torn apart. I mean, you get the idea. Any, any relationship you can imagine. 
is susceptible to this, this reality. And maybe on the smallest level, we've experienced it, maybe in puppy love, that first breakup you had. It seems like a small thing now, but at the time, I mean, it was the worst thing that ever happened to you. Or maybe a falling out with a friend over a disagreement. That's terrible, too. And you can, you can move up the ladder. Things like divorce and death, obviously, are, are, are way beyond that. So our lives are they're tender and vulnerable in these moments uh, of, of deep loss. And we don't have the resources, really, to properly deal with it or cope with it. Um, and to the point where, like Sufian, everything we see and feel reminds us of that deeper pain in our broken relationships. And so all of this... I've, I've kind of brought out, and I think it's really loaded into this metaphor that, that Jesus has given us of being the good shepherd, uh, of sheep and shepherds, of wolves and hired hands from John 10. And so we're the sheep, we're in a relational herd and community-centered sheep. Um, and when we as sheep are subjected to you know, the coldness of being tended to by a hired hand or the utter destruction of wolves coming upon us, our lives are stripped of all meaning. Jesus, as the good shepherd, um, he didn't evade this, plain, this pain and sorrow, though. You know, the, the pain that we feel when we need a shepherd, but we have only a hired hand who leaves the first time his shift is over or when you know, trouble comes the way. I mean, Jesus came into that world. He experienced that coldness, but he also felt the pain of um, wolves ravaging him. And as he tells us in our passage, uh, he laid down his life for us. He experienced relationships that were torn and destroyed and all those other metaphors, or Adjectives I gave you a moment ago, abused, abandoned, detached, and that was all at our hands. And he knew exactly what he was coming into. It wasn't a surprise to him. The passage tells us, I mean, he he lays down his life, he takes us up with his authority. It's not something that he was blindsided by. And unlike the hired hand who leaves at the first sight of danger when the shift is over, Jesus, the only good shepherd, um, he let the wolves ravage him. He died on the cross. He experienced abandonment. I mean, you've heard this before. This is Christianity. But this is it. This is the root of it. When relationships are destroyed, um, we destroy those relationships, and Jesus came into that. He came into that reality. And yet somehow, despite being destroyed, despite going to death, Jesus has restored meaning to his life and to ours in the resurrection. And so here we are in Easter 4. This is the fourth week of Easter. And it's easy to get caught up in the church calendar and kind of get um, too obsessed with that. But I do think we can't lose sight of the resurrection, even at this point. On the face of it, it doesn't really seem to make a lot of sense, does it? I mean, how does the resurrection fix our problems? Um, On the other side of Jesus' resurrection, how is it that, I mean, we still see death, don't we? We still see detachment, we still see pain, we still see sorrow. I mean, we feel these things, we experience them, grief um, and the shatteredness of our relationships. They still persist, don't they? Yeah, they do. But so does Jesus in his resurrection. He's the one who defeated death and the very structures that strip our lives of all meaning. Even though death and and calamity, they still surround us, they still come upon us, and even though we are fully complicit uh, in our sin and in this broken reality, Jesus, the Good Shepherd, still calls out to us and He allows us to call out to Him. He gives us His voice and we hear it, we recognize it as His sheep. He knows His sheep and His sheep know His voice. And so even though all of life, and I, maybe I'm just at this existential crisis with the semester coming to an end and graduation, uh, I'm a Beeson student. Um, I have some of those in the room that feel that too. And maybe you're not a Beeson student, but I, I imagine for most of you, either a crisis has happened recently or a crisis is about to happen. That's just life. I hate to be so grim. But so maybe I'm reading it through a certain lens, but I think it's true to you guys too. 
sin, death, broken relationships, they can't finally, and even semester finals and graduation and the uncertainty about the future, they really can't strip us of all meaning, even though it feels like it's happening. Because Christ restores our lives with meaning in the resurrection. And life may seem unbearable at this time, but the Good Shepherd is still shepherding. He's still shepherding for you. Amen.